It's the 23rd of July, 2017, and this is episode 338 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hello. And Jonathan Mohan. Hello. Thanks for being here today, guys. Nice to be here. I just saw Jonathan in person at the uh, Porcupine Freedom Festival last week. <laughs> so that's right. Both of you guys were at Porkfest. I don't think we did an update last year. Anything to kind of report this year? How was kind of the cryptocurrency scene relative to the silver scene? The silver scene has been non-existent for several years, I would say, at this point. As soon as Bitcoin started becoming like a big deal and sort of like liberty-loving community, the people who wanted to use silver before latched onto Bitcoin instead. I would say that happened like as early as like 2011 or 2012. Internet is still a problem. This is an event that takes place. It's basically a camping festival. It takes place in the mountains of New Hampshire. So there's probably one cell tower that's serving the entire area. And it quickly gets saturated when there's an influx of people with smartphones and stuff coming to this campground. So communications can tend to be unreliable. There's like sponsored internet at the campground, but that gets saturated too. And there's really not a good solution up there because the infrastructure is just not there. So it's kind of an interesting test case for using crypto. Currencies. I think I was on Wikipedia and the town that it's in, which is Lancaster, has about 6,000 people in it. And the pork fest brings up about another thousand. Mm-hmm. So it's like a 20% increase in the amount of people in that town. <laughs> but not the entire town, just that one little hundred acre area. <laughs> the most annoying thing about Bitcoin was actually the transaction fees. As typically the transacting in Bitcoin isn't that big of a problem in the transmission or the broadcasting of the transaction, because the way that they, they do it is they prioritize Bitcoin transactions, the person who provides the internet. But what was deeply annoying was spending a dollar to three dollars on a ten dollar transaction, which had never been before the case at any pork fest that I attended. Yeah, definitely. I'm with you. It's in a situation like that where you're likely, if you don't pay a high enough fee, you're likely to get that situation where the merchant delivers a physical good, usually something kind of low value, like a piece of food or a drink, and uh, the person walks away, and then something happens with the internet, and the transaction never goes through, and the merchant kind of gets screwed. So, I mean, that creates some interesting situations. I did not buy anything myself with Bitcoin at Porkfest. I found the food situation wasn't that great this year. There weren't as many vendors as in years past. So there wasn't a whole ton of opportunity. But we did have some cryptocurrency related talks and stuff. Patrick Byrne from Overstock, who's been on this show, came. And uh, actually, uh, somebody who worked for a Bitcoin company gave me a deck of cards that each card was like a person in the Bitcoin world. And Adam, you, me, and Andreas were all par- featured in it. Jonathan, I think you were in it too. I was oh, one wow. of the queens. <laughs> so so that was really cool <laughs> to see. Where would I get one of those deck of cards? That sounds amazing. Yeah, it was the guys from Medici Ventures. They were sort of associates of Patrick Byrne. They were from Utah and they came out. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so that was really cool. There were also a lot of talks about general kind of crypto punk kind of stuff. Like there was a a panel about mesh networking. My boyfriend, Brian Sovereign, just wrote this book about securing an Android device and encrypting it called The Dark Android. So he gave a talk about how to secure an Android device and got a lot of questions and interest about that. So there were definitely some tech-related panels there. There were some people there that I knew from like Silicon Valley kind of people. So it's kind of interesting to see some of them attending. It's a really hard to get to event. I live in New Hampshire, so it's easy for me. I could just drive. But some of these people had to fly into Boston and then drive for like five hours north, or you have to fly into like Manchester, New Hampshire, or Burlington, Vermont, and then you're still driving two or three hours to get to it. So you have to be committed to want to attend this event. (laughs) And also committed to like maybe not having internet for a week. Yeah, I've never made it up there. Yeah, I know it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a hurdle to get over, but I think it's something to see at least once. I think you would be fascinated, Adam. I think so too. One, I mean, so while we're kind of chasing this rabbit here, I, I am curious. We're going to get to our main cryptocurrency related topic in a minute, but I noticed that the Free State Project, which we've talked about before on the show, and which is essentially a kind of libertarian mass migration to New Hampshire, that it hit its kind of required thresholds, and I believe you're part of that. You're already there. Can, I mean, so has there been any change with the Free State Project? Is there any kind of movement at this point? Or are we still waiting a year or two to see that result? 
I guess we should back up and explain the whole idea of the Free State Project was started in the early aughts, actually. So this has been a, quite an ongoing project for the last over 15 years at this point. It was an idea from a political science professor, Jason Sorens, that was studying the migration of subcultures or like groups to states and the effect that they had on local politics. So for example, like a lot of Mormons concentrate in Utah, and as a result, they affect the political landscape there. Same thing with environmentalists or like maybe you could call them hippies or crunchy people in Vermont have had an effect on local politics as well. So he said, what would happen if a bunch of libertarians like concentrated in one place? And that was how the idea of the Free State Project got started. I got interested in it back then in the early aughts. Like I think I heard about it in 2003 or something like that. Mm -hmm. At the time I was living in Massachusetts and New Hampshire was right across the border. And I had always thought to myself, I'd always had like a libertarian streak. I like the like live free or die kind of thing. <laughs> New Hampshire, it's really beautiful. It's got like tons of mountains and outdoor hiking and streams and stuff to do. And I like, I was used to the climate anyway, because being from the Northeast. So I had been sort of already thinking like, yeah, at some point I want to move to New Hampshire anyway. Anyway, and then the Free State Project announced, well, we're going to choose New Hampshire, and there were reasons for that. We're going to choose New Hampshire to create this pledge where we want to get 20,000 people to pledge that they'll move to New Hampshire as long as the other 19,999 do as well. And then once we get there, we'll work to create a freer society, kind of like whatever that means to each individual who signs the pledge. It was purposely left vague because it has to be kind of a big tent to draw 20,000 people. 20,000 libertarians, especially. 20,000. Yeah, exactly. Because these are often rugged individualists, people who don't like to be told what to do or join big groups. And they like to hash out the details and argue over smaller points a lot of times. So yeah, it's a, it's a hard task to get those kind of people together. But 15 years later, <laughs> they gathered enough steam, or maybe 16 years later. It was in 2016, I believe, like March, that the Free State Project met its pledge goal. So they got 20,000 people to say, yes, I will move to New Hampshire as long as all these other people do too, and work to create a freer society. But in the meantime, while that was happening, some people didn't want to wait. And so a lot of people moved to New Hampshire early in advance of that the pledge being fulfilled or met. And I was one of those people. I moved to New Hampshire in 2006. And like I said, I wanted to move to New Hampshire anyway. It was just kind of a bonus that <laughs> there happened to be all these other people who I would say are similar to my political philosophy, I guess. Lately, these days, like in the last year or so, I've been a little bit like eh, on the label libertarian as, as with any political labels, because it makes people mad and people don't understand. It's like when you're communicating, using a certain label is only as effective as what it means to the other person, right? So if somebody here is libertarian... And in the past couple of years, libertarians become a cool word. So you have people like both Bill Maher and Glenn Beck claiming that they're libertarians. <laughs> right. right, who are very, very different politically. And so it's like, what does that word even mean? I didn't know it's become a cool word. I always thought it was <laughs> like not hip to be a libertarian. <laughs> <laughs> well, libertarian means you, you, you like technology and you smoke weed. <laughs> okay, well, I like technology. I don't smoke weed. <laughs> well, then I guess, I guess these days you make a poor libertarian. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> so anyway... I like Bitcoin. How about that? There you go. <laughs> That's pretty good. And that actually brings us to bring it uh, back in, which is that the Free State Project and the libertarians who came out to that were very much into alternative forms of currency. In fact, one of the most enjoyable things at Porkfest is that they call the dollar by its true name, which is a Federal Reserve note. It's FRS. <laughs> You'd hear that bandied about quite a bit when people referring to uh, fiat currency or something like that, or, or FRNs. You can pay with Bitcoin or FRNs. That's what they would say. <laughs> anyway, so the Free State Project met its goal. 20,000 people said, yes, I'll move to New Hampshire. That was in 2016. But they have five years to move once the pledge is fulfilled. So basically, the move has been triggered, but people have five years to actually get to New Hampshire. And in the meantime, you've got all the early moves who are already here and already doing whatever they want to do in, in terms of making New Hampshire a freer place to live, whether that's volunteering and being a good neighbor, or whether that's like getting involved in local politics, or whether it's doing media or shows or things like that. It's a very interesting big tent of people. I would say it is a pretty big tent, even though it's kind of this niche, like political philosophy of libertarianism. 
it is very diverse within that. You have people who have more conservative values and more people who are more like socially liberal. But the overarching thing is like live and love, right? So yeah, to answer your question in a long-winded way, Adam, <laughs> it's we've got until I guess 2021 before everybody and there's nobody who enforces this pledge, right? It's like right, you, right. you make a promise to move to New Hampshire, but nobody's going to check. They might they might email you and follow up if you gave right. them their e- your email address, but <laughs> nobody's going to like enforce it and say, "Hey, you promised to move to New Hampshire." The idea is to get this initial critical mass of people and then make New Hampshire a place where people who like freedom are going to want to live because it's attractive to them. It's an interesting experiment, it seems like, in kind of physical network effect, right? When we talk about network effect, most of the time we're talking about these distributed systems. This is sort of the opposite of that. It's taking what starts as a distributed system and figuring out a way to centralize it while still making each part decentralized. It's, I, I'm, I continue to be fascinated with the idea. Do you expect to see any sort of meaningful change to the, you know, the state that you live in as a result of this? I think there already have been meaningful changes. Personally, I don't really get involved with politics, uh, local politics, but there have been several dozens of people who are associated with the Free State Project in one way or another that got elected to the New Hampshire legislature. They've already passed bills that are more freedom oriented. The discussion has shifted. Like if you listen to NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio, they're talking about politics. They'll often have sort of more of a libertarian viewpoint that's represented in the discussion. They have like, there are opposition groups to the Free State Project that are like holding seminars in New Hampshire saying, what do you need to know about these free staters who are moving in and trying to change everything? (laughs) (laughs) So it is very interesting to watch. And also just the community aspect. That's actually the most interesting part to me is just the people who I have met through the Liberty community in New Hampshire that have ended up becoming people who I buy food from, like farmers, friends, business contacts. You know, I get some voiceover clients that way. You have like a a social group that you can kind of be part of. Not to say everyone's great or perfect within that social group, but there are a lot of really cool people that you automatically have something in common with if you're both interested in Liberty and that's what drew you to New Hampshire. So that's the part about it that I like best. And I think it's been a positive for my life just to be around more people that I have stuff in common with. Okay. Well, I appreciate the update on that. I think that we'll probably want to check in on that and I guess in about a year and see kind of how it's progressing. Sure. A year, five years, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, what do you think as a as an outsider, I guess? I mean, you're, <laughs> you're, you're a community organizer for the Bitcoin NYC meetup. So you have a lot of access to community. And New York is a big place, but it can, I know it can sometimes in a city be hard to filter down to who is your tribe, you know, who are your people. So what is your experience with being both the community organizing that you've done and also seeing what what the community in New Hampshire is like? (laughs) I I really like the Free State Project and the things that go on in New Hampshire. I just very much love the big city life. You don't get that in New Hampshire. (laughs) (laughs) The sub-specialization of no matter how niche or weird your idea is, there's going to be a meetup for it and people talking about it every week. And I just, I love that to death. As it relates to the the notions of freedom, it's great. I, I constantly remind people, people who come to New York call it the Big Apple, but New Yorkers refer to it as the Empire State. And that's done for a reason. <laughs> I do like the principles of the Free State Project. However, I, I personally like where I'm at because I feel like when you're in a war, you go where the fighting is, not where you'd like to be. Hmm. Well, there's different philosophies on that, too. It's like, I don't know, I feel like I don't want to really fight a war. I kind of just want to be happy and have a happy life and feel like I stand a good chance of that in New Hampshire. <laughs> it's like the, the, the issue with other countries where they're like, you know, our country needs to get better, but all of their brilliant minds come and move to America. So they never get to reboot that fix the society problem. It's, it's new, new, uh, anyway, it's, I like New Hampshire, but I feel like it's taking all the great people who could be activists in their own cities and taking them away to let their cities crumble with statist <laughs> ideologies because those uh, shining lights aren't there. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess I can see the brain drain aspect, but at the same time, like all those people are individuals and they have to make the best choices for themselves and live where they feel most happy. And maybe they feel like they're just frustrated where they live trying to do activism if that's what they do. 
I could certainly see that that point of view. Uh, you know, in California, like there's not even a point in being political. Like it doesn't even matter right. what you believe. Yeah. It's it's set. It's done. Doesn't matter what you do. You can go out and you can wave signs and you can you know protest or whatever. But that's about the level of impact that you can have. So I could definitely see the argument in favor where if you wanted to be active, the chances of actually being successful at anything, right, at, at enacting any kind of change, seems like you can see why they picked New Hampshire for that, with it being so small. Right, you're going to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Right. Even if the size of the fish doesn't change, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Taking this analogy a little too far. It's, it's okay. I appreciate you going down this. I, I appreciate you, you updating us on it. You know, freedom's a hard thing, right? It's a question of what are your goals? Are you thinking about this from kind of a big picture perspective? Or are you thinking about it from a focus on just your life specifically? Because the actions you take yeah. matter a lot, depending on that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, my I would say over the last 11 years that I've lived in New Hampshire, my focus has really changed. I used to be very outwardly focused and interested in politics and things that I don't have have a lot of personal influence over. You know, like you said, Adam, you can stand out on the corner and hold a sign, but what are you really going to be able to do as just an individual? Since then, my focus has shifted a lot more onto just my own life and what I can't control. So things like who do I hang out with? Who are my friends? Who are, what do I do for my job? You know, what is my daily life like? My health, things like that are more important to me as time goes on. Yeah, I think that that, Stephanie, is a sign that both you and I are getting old. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Hey, getting old is better than the alternative, right? Okay. Well, guys, I appreciate this diversion. Let's get to the meat of today's topic, which basically is the idea and kind of taking a step back from tokenization. And so I, I have a little prepared set of blurbs I'm going to read here. So Fred Ursum of Coinbase recently published an article on scaling Ethereum to billions of users. In it, he said something that I think that many of us have thought or said before, but now with the scaling debate, both on Bitcoin and Ethereum revealing itself to be something of a bigger dragon than perhaps was anticipated, I think that it's worth discussing this one particular comment in more detail. So what Fred said is, everything will be tokenized and connected by a blockchain one day. And there are a few questions just in that one sentence that are worth discussing here. And I'm just going to go over them all and then we'll address them one at a time. The first is, should everything actually be tokenized? Uh, what is the value of tokenizing everything in a practical sense? And even if it's not a practical sense, why do we want to do that? The second question is, both in terms of scaling and everything else, how can everything be tokenized, right? Do we link together multiple blockchains? Do we put everything on one chain and consider it the big global ledger of everything that can exist? And almost as importantly, can something be tokenized and connected by a blockchain, but without incurring the cost of putting everything on the blockchain, right? Because there's a difference between using cryptocurrency as an authentication layer versus using it as a transactional layer for everything. And finally, the last question is, what's a reasonable time frame to see any amount of the world's stuff, all the things, as we like to say, actually being turned into and represented by tokens? You know, in 10 years, do we expect to see 1% or 50% or I mean, like, what's a reasonable kind of time frame of getting from where we are today to where we need to be in order for all of these things to be represented as tokens? Let's go back to the first question. Should everything be tokenized? I'm going to go with no. I will argue for the no position on that. And I'll tell you why. Because when I think of somebody who wants to tokenize everything, I think of somebody who is pretty interested in control. Because things that are tokenized and things that are tied to a blockchain have to obey the rules of the code that governs the blockchain. And things that are tokenized, therefore, are governable. And there are some things that just aren't governable or maybe shouldn't be governable, should have some opportunity for free will. You know, that's part of what makes us human is the ability to make decisions and to sort of trust ourselves to do the right thing. And that might be different in different circumstances and to integrate all this complex information into those decisions. And some things like, like children or wild animals are just <laughs> not governable <laughs> sure. as much as some people might want them to be, okay. you know? <laughs> so, so I shy away from the idea of tokenizing everything. And I know maybe that makes me sound like a technophobe, but I think there's something to be said for just that human element. You've brought up a good point here. It sounds like we need to define terms. When I read this, I take this to mean all the 
things. I don't consider people to be things, right? I don't consider... Are animals things? I, I don't consider animals to be things. I think that you can turn an animal into a thing by putting it into you know a process. Like you could say that farming turns animals into things. And I think that there is an argument for being able to represent an animal like beef that's raised for meat, for example. Mm-hmm. I could see an argument in tokenizing that. But if you're talking about, you know, like a gazelle on the highlands or whatever in Africa. What about like a pet dog? People have robotic companion animals that they're making now. There's those dogs in Japan that were really popular, the robot dogs. I don't remember. I think it was Sony that made them. I think that that's an interesting point. I would say that that probably is more of a thing than an animal is. But you're right. It gets fuzzy there. I can definitely see how, depending on who you're talking to, you might get a different answer for that, depending on kind of how they view cognition and free will and stuff like that. What about androids when they, like, I'm talking about androids that are human-like, for example, sex robots or just robots, robot servants. AI is advancing and robotics is advancing to the point where they're, they can be very human-like. Eventually, they're going to be indistinguishable from human beings. Are those things or people? I think the things that can be owned. I'm sidestepping your question here. <laughs> Let's just say that... These are all important questions, though, that come up when you talk about this. Okay. They are important questions, but I'm not convinced that we can answer any of these. And I, I also think that we risk losing the thread of the conversation. So let's assume that we're talking about just consumer products. We're not talking about anything that's alive. We're not talking about anything that may or may not have rights as a human or as an individual. And just for the purposes of this discussion, we're also saying pets don't count, slaves don't count, anything like that that one could possibly imagine. We're not talking about that. How about we just look at things that already are tokenized we just don't use the word token to describe them because i i think that there are certain characteristics of what people think a token is and then when you understand that an object has 90 or 95 percent of those characteristics it just doesn't have the last five or ten then you get to understand i think where fred's coming from and saying nearly everything or everything will be tokenized so if you look at the dollar I, I always describe Bitcoin. People say, well, you know, digital money. I, I don't know about that. I say, well, you know, the, the dollar is a cryptographically secure digital currency. <laughs> it's, it's what bank accounts use. It's a, the vast majority of dollars in circulations are digits on an Excel sheet, basically in a bank that uses cryptography to secure that. So to what extent could you say that Bitcoin's a token, but the dollar isn't a token? Well, you could say it in the sense that when it's digitized, you no longer have the bare form of the instrument. When you digitize dollars, you no longer own the dollars, you own, or own rights to the dollars. Whereas when you digitize Bitcoin, you can still have rights to those Bitcoin. So I think that if you look at everything that has value that's digitized now, the, the main aspect from what considers it a traditional thing versus a token is are the rights associated with that digital instrument bearer in form? That is, can you actually be in custody of it in your device? And then when, when you think of a token in that way, Think of all of the things that are of digital value and then whether or not it would make sense for you to want to be in custody of that value. And in that sense, it would make sense to convert them into a token. So that's really interesting, Jonathan. And again, I know you want to talk about sort of inanimate objects, Adam, and not things that maybe have a will or rights or whatever under the definition of natural rights or the idea of natural rights. But I mean, I think under that definition of tokenizing things, human beings are already tokenized in a way in the sense of their identity is tokenized. Look at passports, look at driver's licenses, look at social security numbers. As soon as a baby is born, it gets, what is the first thing they do? Give it a social security number and a birth certificate. And so that's a way of tokenizing human beings. And there's some people who really... Yeah, well, Facebook has tokenized everyone's identity to make money off of Oh, well. yeah, your online persona. Uh, absolutely. And not just Facebook, Google, every big online companies that, you know, do advertising, Verizon, whoever else, AT&T. I mean, all the telecoms and all the internet service providers and all the social media, they've got a token that represents you to some extent. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about that in recent years. I think it's not appropriate to ignore that tokenization of humanity or people (laughs) because it's already happening even without blockchain technology being ubiquitous. And there's also blockchain companies that are talking explicitly about tokenizing IDs. For example, BitNation and others. There was actually a uh... There was actually a conference at the UN uh, two weeks ago called ID2020, looking at giving every human in the world an identity 
and looking at a blockchain as an enabling technology to make that happen. Okay, so I hear all of those arguments, and again, I feel like this is a problem at a fundamental level of what tokenization means, and I think that it's important to define terms. So what you guys are talking about, I'm pretty darn sure, isn't actually something that would use a token, right? What you are talking about are things where you use cryptography or message signing or the blockchain or whatever to do essentially chain of custody and verification, but that's not actually tokenization. You might call that digitization or, or uh, blockchainization or something like that. But tokenization has to do with taking something, right, that exists either in the digital or the physical world and representing it with a token that can, as Jen Jonathan said, act like a bearer asset, but doesn't necessarily have to act like a bearer asset. That's the difference here, I think, is that when you don't need transferability of the thing, so like in the ID situation, you don't need transferability there. It actually is not helpful. You want to make sure that the person who has those credentials is actually the person with those credentials. You just don't, you don't want them to be able to give it to somebody else and then have it be as good for them as it was for the person it was actually issued for. So there's not a reason to use a token in that situation. But if you're talking about a physical product or a service or access to some space, like access to something, right? Exactly. Like there's a lot of things like that. Like you could basically take the commercial and services industries and you could say, all right, everything in these, everything that's a product or a service or anything like that can be represented as a token. And what that does at a fundamental level, from my perspective, is it makes it so all of those things can trade against each other. And it makes it so that as far as I can tell, again, if we have a future that Fred is describing here where tokenization is this pervasive thing and everything is tokenized, then what that really seems to be to me is a world where you don't need money in order to operate. Uh, it's a world where you can effectively just have stuff in token form and then trade it liquidly as you want other things. And so if you're someone who produces something, your contribution might entirely be just producing that item with your business, selling it uh, in, you know, real form and token form, and then using that essentially as money um, with all of these uh, other services out there that are also on compatible systems. So what you're talking about, though, is not a moneyless economy. It's a barter economy, which is still money. It's just like a different form than we're used to. Well, but that's the thing is it's an economy where a value is fungible, not by using a common value token, but by just using the values themselves. And the advantage it has over barter system, I agree, it's, it is like a global distributed barter system. The advantage that it has is that um, you can do it granularly, right? These tokens, just like Bitcoin, can be split down to eight or 16 decimal places, depending on what protocol you're using. And as a result, it means that you never have a situation where, well, I have one chicken and you have five bricks and we want to trade a chicken for a brick. But the exchange rate makes it so I'm going to have to give you one and a quarter chickens in order to make this math work, or you're going to have to give me a discount or I have to get less bricks than I want, right? I see. Yeah, I see what you're saying, but I also don't see that happening because I think it just gets so confusing to store, to hold all these different tokens that represent different things. I think there would still be some kind of um, universal, completely liquid, like basically what we think of as money, some, mm -hmm. some common denominator that would be easier for people to trade in and that could be exchanged for anything well if you if you want to get really technical about the construct of money bitcoin isn't a currency it's a it's like a commodity right and when you transact with bitcoin you're using a reference price in dollars what you're basically doing is agreeing that dollar is the underlying currency of the transaction while neither party is transacting with dollars and you're just doing a straight barter of your commodity for their asset so when I gave someone Bitcoin for pizza, we transacted in dollars, but neither of us transacted with dollars. That was basically a dollar pegged barter exchange. So, I mean, in, in, a, in a technical sense, whenever you use Bitcoin, you're already doing what Adam says, because Bitcoin likes to think of itself as a currency, but it's not quite there yet. And you know it's not there because the reference point of every transaction in Bitcoin is the dollar which is to say it's more analogous to a barter transaction than it is a straight currency swap or a currency exchange. With all that said, I'm not saying this is more efficient than using money. I'm saying that it presents an option that might be practical for not using money in most situations or in all situations where there is a common form of value, where there is a mix of, oh, you have gold and I have Bitcoin. Okay, we can make a trade for this. And it doesn't matter that the, the denominations would otherwise make this very difficult technically. It makes it so that it can ha happen very easily. And with layers built on top, again, Bancor is an interesting project 
that just did an ICO. And regardless of what you think about the project or the math behind it or anything like that, the idea of having uh, tokens that are commonly backed by one type of token, as you're saying, means that you could have tokens. I have Atom Coin, and it's worth you know one Bitcoin per token, and you have Stephanie Coin, and it's worth two Bitcoin per token. You send me an invoice for you know one Stephanie Coin. I see an invoice for four Atom Coin. Right? I pay you, and in route, it can actually transition into whatever token you want because that common value backing is there. So right now we don't have that. Right now that's still just kind of just ICO'd and that's what they're going to be attempting to do. But that I see that as a solution to the problem that you're describing here. Um, and I think that whether it's Bancor or something else, the having the exchange happen automatically in the wallet as users interact with each other means that the wallet takes all of that complexity and the users just have to say, here's what I want, here's what I've got. And then the wallets kind of figure out what the best way to do it is. Well, I mean, to an extent, uh, you have a system like Jax, which attempts to do that right now, which uses a shapeshift integration to allow you to transition from altcoin to altcoin. Right. Absolutely. I agree. There are a number of systems. Jax has a really good one. There's also Exodus wallets and a couple of others that have kind of used Shapeshift as a core building block of their wallet, which then the wallet supports multiple types of tokens. So it allows you to kind of do all these things at once. The thing that's different about it is it's not automated. In the future, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's going to be automated. I think users won't know that it's happening. They'll just know the kind of values they care about and the kind of money they have and then they'll get bills and the, the request to pay will essentially come in in value that they already understand. But anyways, this is something that happens at the end of the process, right? Once you've got a lot of things represented as tokens and getting from kind of here to there presents an interesting problem, which leads us into the next question, which is assuming for a second that all or lots or some of this stuff should be tokenized, given the current actual technical constraints on scaling, how can we possibly get there <laughs> for a long time, I have at this point, it's been a long time at this point, thought that we are going to see multiple blockchains and that we will see specialized blockchains where once a structure hits capacity, then it will split and will become more than one. So the scenario that I've given for a long time is if you had a blockchain that was dedicated to music, then once you hit the capacity of that blockchain and you start to hit scaling troubles, the correct thing to do, in my opinion, is to take that and to split it into different blockchains, which can all kind of rally together or different side chains, depending on how you want to phrase it, that can all be used together, each one with its own genre. So music becomes, uh, instead of being one big blockchain, you take a fifth of it, you put it into country blockchain, you take a fifth of it, you put it into rock or kind of whatever the allocations are. And then as those fill up, then you split it into subgenres. And if you, you know, get to country and turns out nobody actually cares about country and country doesn't grow at all or doesn't grow as fast, then you never actually need to split country again. Country can remain that way. But at the same time, if rock and roll is, you know, super growing fast and, you know, it's now at capacity again after a year, well, then you can split that into all the subgenres of, you know, ambient rock and just like as kind of as far down the, the turtle uh, tree, if I can coin a phrase as you need to go in order to do that. And so that's kind of how I've thought that it would happen for something like this. But there are other proposals and the idea of many blockchains is I think getting more traction these days because we're seeing how difficult scaling is. But for a long time, that was not a very popular opinion at all. The question that keeps coming up for me is like, and maybe it doesn't need to be, but why does this stuff need to be on blockchains? Maybe it needs to be on server networks because they don't necessarily have problems with scaling the way blockchains do. It doesn't all have to be distributed. And actually, there's probably a lot of use cases for tokenizing things where whoever wants it to be tokenized wouldn't want it to be on a distributed network. They would want it to be on a private network or server farm of some kind. For example, like Internet of Things stuff. Samsung, who makes your refrigerator, doesn't want the tokens that govern it to be on like a distributed network. They want it to be on their their own servers. Or like the hotel that's giving you tokens to get into the door. They want to be hosting all those tokens and having them live on their own servers, Marriott or whatever. There is a very real reason to have a token, but to get to what you're saying, a lot of it right now, I believe it's just a lot of hype. And there's so much over-enthusiasm that just by having a token in your system makes you just interesting enough to get the feedback network effect going for people to want to use your project. There's a, there was a joke going around for quite some time that is still true, which is if you, if you ever do the weekend hackathon uh, game or the startup weekend sort of stuff, if you take any idea and you add the word blockchain to it, you will place top three 
in the weekend hackathon. Oh, that's so true. And it, it's not even a joke. Yes, like we've actually had friends who take just any idea, add the word blockchain to the idea, and because of that, will be second place or third. And we're like win a couple thousand dollars. It's not. It's not even a. Not, it's not even like in a joking way, like in an actual like make money sort of way. And that's because you can have a mediocre idea, and then just in understanding blockchain, people osmos the an innovation in blockchain to your idea being innovative. And then think it's more interesting and are more enthused to engage with it and are more willing to want to do something with it. it it's sort of like how, you know, someone said, well, I want to do a pet store. Well, I want to do a pet store online. They go, well, what's this online thing? Well, it's the Internet. And then people learn about the Internet. And then all of a sudden, pets.com becomes the most interesting thing in the world when, you know, it didn't even support its own business model. So I think that to an entrepreneur sense... Adam and I have talked about this a little bit previously, which is that sometimes you just got to go where the market wants to buy something. And in, in blockchain, there are areas where there's just so much fermented interest. You just got to give the market what they want. And especially if your technology or if the thing that you're trying to sell is something that without a blockchain component, they would be enthused at all about. From my perspective, the advantage of tokenization is not something that applies universally. Really, it's about do you want the characteristics that make Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general valuable? Is that something that if you apply those characteristics to whatever it is that you're talking about tokenizing, it makes it better or it allows you to do things that you want to do? <laughs> Important point there that you actually want to enable, it enables them. So I talk with a lot of people who talk about voting systems, right, where you could have votes based on tokens. And the problem with that, of course, is that you don't actually want votes to be transferable. Making votes transferable is a terrible idea for a whole bunch of different reasons. And so while people might want the blockchain for validating the information to timestamping, all of the other things that the blockchain is good for, the attributes that make Bitcoin valuable actually make the system worse if you attempt to do something with a token. From my perspective, the advantage of tokenization is that it is a neutral ownership layer that can work on any website on the internet because it is not the internet itself. It is a separate layer from the internet, can be referenced by software or wallets or everything else. So if you want a system where something can work within your platform or it can also work within another platform, then that's a good thing to create a token out of. If you have something that you want someone to be able to buy from you, you want to be able to know that they bought it, and then you want them to be able to send it to somebody else or many other people, you know, one after the other, and then that person at the end of the chain comes back to you, and you still can tell that this is the same token that you sold at the beginning to that first guy in this chain of 50, then a token is valuable to you because the attributes of Bitcoin make that work, right? The the unforgeability of it, the traceability of it, kind of all of these attributes that are useful. But again, if you don't want transferability in your system, if you're like, well, we want to give this to you, but you can't transfer it to anybody. And if you transfer it to somebody, then we're not going to count it any longer because we're watching all the addresses. I've had conversations like this before too. And it's like, that takes the tokenization value proposition and actually makes it into a negative because now you've introduced a way that your your user can screw up and can make something now not valuable. And also you introduce fungibility issues because now you're saying, oh, well, if this gets transferred to somebody else's address, well, then it, it's not worth the same to them as it was to you because you're the one that bought it and that's all we care about. So that's, I mean, that's my general feedback here is that perhaps this is just something I've misunderstood and people are thinking about the word tokenization in a much broader sense than I am. But that's what I'm talking about is literally taking something and giving it the attributes of the Bitcoin type token, which in some cases is really great and empowering and enables this sort of thing I'm talking about. And in other cases, just introduces headaches and extra costs that you have to deal with that it would be much better to exclude the token entirely. Yeah, I think that's the main point is that there's no one size fits all solution for everything in the world, right? Like it, Very much so. it would be nice, I guess, if they were, but it's a fantasy because things have to be done on a case by case basis. And really, at the end of the day, central planners, you can't control everything. And maybe it's not even a good use of time and resources to try for certain things. Care careful there, Stephanie, you're beginning to sound a lot like a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> the last part of this question is 
okay, so let's let's talk 10 years out. You can go into technicals of how you think it'll happen if you want. You don't have to. 10 years out, what percentage of the things and you can def- tell what definition you're using if you want to if you want to say everything, Stephanie, also. What percentage do we think will be on a blockchain or utilized in a token capacity in 10 years? I guess since the beginning of this conversation, I've had a pretty broad definition of token, maybe that a little bit more broad than what you are using, Adam. But I would say that in the next 10 years, I would say maybe more than half of the things will be tokenized. Wow. I think already we're we're getting there to where... I would say a third of things or maybe below 50% of things are tokenized and it's going to (laughs) grow like cars nowadays. You can't get like a physical key anymore for a new car. It's all like this stick that you hold. And when you're near the car, you touch the doorknob and it opens. And then you go and you get inside, you press a button and the engine starts like there's no key anymore. And that's really weird to me because, you know, I have a car with a key (laughs) and I don't want to give up that key necessarily. Call me old fashioned, but it just seems like the more potential for these new systems the more things that can go wrong and potential for them to be hacked and exploited. But I mean, we need both available just so people can choose. When people have a choice, it's always better. But sometimes when technology advances, it's like you don't have a choice because you can no longer get a refrigerator that's not connected to the internet. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like right. de-, de facto, you don't have a choice because the thing that, that the old technology is no longer available. I always like more choices and options. So as long as those choices and options still exist and we're not sort of cattle corralled into token solutions, whether we like it or not, as long as choice exists, I'm fine with certain things being tokenized or having the option to be tokenized. But I'm not sure I, I I like being sort of funneled into those <laughs> those token solutions, you know. I'm honestly a little surprised to see you saying that large of a percentage. I don't know if I think that that large a percentage is actually going to be tokenized in 10 years. Well, look at 2007. Did you have a smartphone in 2007? I did. I had a BlackBerry. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bad person to ask about this. I, I had a cell phone then and I don't now. <laughs> oh, oh, so you've gone full circle. You've gone to the next level already. Yeah. So... So, I mean, but I guess when I look at how smartphones have changed our lives in the last 10 years, just largely everybody, now it's like there's, you know, everybody has their face in their phone during dinner and all the time. And whereas 10 to 15 years ago and 15 years before that, we were all using like rotary telephones (laughs) or cordless phones were like a big deal. You could have a car phone, but it was like a giant brick that was the size of your head. Look how far we've come. Even just digital cameras, like 10 years ago, I think I had people were buying like standalone digital cameras. They weren't connected to the internet. And it was like a big thing because they didn't use film. So you could take as many pictures as you want, as long as they fit on your memory card, which sometimes that was a problem because they were small and, you know, data storage has gotten more cheap and better as time has gone on. But like now we have all, we all have a camera in our pocket. And like those things have been revolutionized just in the last 10 years. The pace of technology growing doesn't tend to slow down. It tends to go exponential. And so that's why I say that I think in the next 10 years, yeah, there really could be a revolution in our American lives where everything is tokenized. And you go to certain parts of the world where it's not, and it's like back in time almost. Well, it's uh, one of my favorite sayings is people overestimate what can be done in five years, underestimate what can be done in 10, and can't even imagine what can be done in 50. Mm, Yeah, that's true. That's pretty true. <laughs> that rings true for me so far the last couple of years. So given that, what, what do you think we're going to see with this? Well, I have a broken record on the idea of custody and custody management. For me, blockchains all come down to control of your own product. So I, I think that in any scenario where you as a consumer want someone else to administrate over something you own while at all times owning it, or inversely, if you're an entrepreneur or a company and you want to provide a product, but don't want to be the one in custody of that product as it is being used, that I think that a blockchain would represent the vast majority, if not most all, of the use case in that area. So in 10 years, it wouldn't surprise me if what I just described, if 90% to 100% of those types of behaviors or activities are done using a blockchain. So that is, a, I think, a very interesting point that we have not touched on yet, which is that 
there is actually a meaningful difference between something like Bitcoin and something like a token that represents a thing that has a, a merchant at the end of it, right? And that the difference is, is that Bitcoin really is a bearer asset in that if you have the token, you have the value of the token. The value of the token is the token itself. And the real underlying value is it pays the Bitcoin network transaction fee, right? It's the only thing on the Bitcoin network that can pay that transaction fee. A blockchain token that is different from that. So let's say that I make hats, right? And I sell hats and I decide I'm going to represent my to my hats as tokens and I'm going to sell hats as tokens. And then I'll redeem those, those tokens when people bring them back to me. Or, you know, even let's just say like I run a website and I want to use a token as a password that allows people to get into a members only area. The thing that's different between Bitcoin and what I've just created is that if I go away, then the value proposition of the token goes away. So if I'm not there to accept your hat token and send you back a hat, or if I am there to accept your hat token, but I just decide ah, I'm done with this, I'm not going to send you any hats anymore, then the value that you have, even though you still have the token, is basically worthless. And this is the same thing if you bought a gift card to a company that then went out of business or started doing something like that. So actually, the analogy here to the, if Bitcoin is money then that, that's what that is, right? The US government, at least it seems like, isn't on the verge of going out of business. There's not really too much concern at this point. Although, who knows? I mean, you never know. We're, we're all getting more conservative as time goes on. It seems like the dollar is sticking around. So having a dollar bill in your hand or a $20 bill or whatever is actually money, whereas having a coupon to Sears, right, or a gift certificate from Sears is not money in the same way. So that's an important distinction here is that this doesn't actually replace money in that there's still counterparty risk and that you actually have to have the person who's issued that token. They actually have to make it valuable. So in that way, it's very different. I don't know. I'm lost. <laughs> okay. Stephanie, if I give you a $20 bill, then you can take that $20 bill and you can use it anywhere, right? It's worth 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. I give you an IOU that says IOU 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. And you might find somebody out there who believes that I'll pay the 20 bucks, right? It might say this is payable to the bearer or whatever. Uh, and, and you might find people to give it to. But then if later in the thing, I'm like, actually, no, decided I'm not actually going to honor that. Screw you. Bye-bye. Then it turns out it wasn't worth that money ever, really. It might have seemed like it was worth that money at first. Whereas the $20 bill, at least as far as I can tell, is worth 20 bucks, regardless of really where you take it, because there's no concern. Well, there is. I guess it's possible that the issuer of the $20 bill could, could go... <laughs> you know, it's possible, but the chances of the U.S. federal government, it, who issues the money, defaulting on that debt are a lot lower than me personally defaulting on that debt for a whole bunch of different reasons. So that that I think is the situation in a nutshell here is that any token that's created, and this is true of ICOs too, right? Like if you paid for a token and the platform doesn't exist yet, mm -hmm. that token is only valuable to you in an actual sense if they actually use the money to build the platform and make it so that that token is useful within the platform. Yes. So there's a differentiation between once they're, once that's launched, right? Once Bitcoin or once Ethereum launches, then the token becomes worth whatever the token's worth because it's useful within the network. But before that, it's just kind of like a future that you're trading. And ultimately it relies on the company or the group or whatever to deliver the value in order for it to be valuable really at all. Yeah, I agree. So in a world where everything is tokenized or more things are tokenized, you're saying that there would be more risk inherent in all those tokens because there's going to be a lot of things that are sort of tokens that are based on future products or things that don't yet exist? I actually think that it winds up being, I think it's an improvement. Just look at it compared to cryptocurrency, right? With cryptocurrency, you essentially have one token that is made valuable by all of the users, right? So just talking about Bitcoin, one token that's made valuable by all of the users, and each user has a very small ability to impact it. And so what that means is you need large numbers of users to really impact value in any sort of significant way. Whereas with a token that you're creating like this, it is more centralized, right? The value proposition doesn't come from all of the users. It just comes from the issuing user. And so at the same time, they have more power to screw it up, but they also have the essentially incentive of being the only miner in that system, right? They're the ones that create the tokens and get to determine how they get displayed out. So there is power there to screw it up, but the incentive is also there to do a good job because if you do, then that party benefits a lot more than any one party benefits from the success or failure of Bitcoin. Or to keep lying and keep up a facade so that the value stays up. That's true too. Again, like that's definitely true. And obviously a lot of the projects out there, whether they're well-intentioned or not, are going to fail simply because this stuff is really hard. And a lot of those value propositions that people are kind of counting on aren't going to materialize. 
But it still means that if you don't look at individual tokens, right, you look at the ecosystem of all of these different tokens, all of which have this incentive, all of which have their own unique issuing person who has that set of incentives or their own unique issuing company or what have you that has that incentive, then maybe that winds up being a more stable system, right? Maybe Bitcoin actually gains stability, maybe cryptocurrency gains stability, because instead of having only these fully decentralized things, you also will have hundreds of thousands of smaller things that are given value by the specific reputations of each issuer. And so right now, that's individuals. In the future, it seems like that'll be companies. In the future, it'll be companies who already have a lot of money and value behind their reputation. And if one of them fails, it's like kind of a stock failing, you know, like there's not really a problem to the market unless you have a situation like if Apple fails right now, that would be a problem to the market. The the market has gotten a bit out of balance. But in kind of a, a pure sense, the market shouldn't overall be impacted by the success or failure of one company. And so this should, in theory, create more stability, assuming that, you know, most of these aren't bull. Well, that's a big assumption to make. <laughs> it's a big assumption. <laughs> and right now they are totally, I mean, like, Jonathan, you and I were talking about it before the show. My basic feeling on the ICO thing is that we're going to see this bubble deflate at the point that real companies start coming in with real revenue numbers and real valuations. And as a result, they provide a point of comparison that to this point has really been missing from the cryptocurrency ICO space, right? I would also personally not put blockchain on too high of a horse in comparison to the traditional markets. Because in traditional finance, too big to fail meant that they bail you out after your failed trades unwound. And in blockchain, too big to fail means they just undo reality. (laughs) (laughs) So the DAO is the first example of a too big to fail enterprise on blockchain. And what they did would be considered wholly and grossly unconscionable in traditional finance. But blockchain is the wild west of finance. That's both a good thing and a bad thing. And I think that traditional finance as blockchain grows, we could only wish it could get away with some of the nonsense that we're going to see happen in blockchain. Well, it seems obvious that after the ICO thing, <laughs> I don't know if I want to say winds its course. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what I want. As, as we continue to go down this path of ICOs and more and more tokens launching, raising you know hundreds of millions of dollars potentially, it seems obvious that we have another round of cryptocurrency regulation talk in our future. <laughs> uh, just like we did back when the altcoin boom started going and people started you know using Bitcoin in kind of a more real way, the bit license happened, all that stuff. My expectation is that next year we'll see another round of that, if not earlier. And we'll see. So I mean, so whether or not that remains true, that it stays the Wild West, I think that's a big question mark at this point, because it's obvious that as the money is flowing in here, the stakes are growing. And the people who are participating are changing. And there's definitely going to be a push for regulation for a whole bunch of different reasons. When when we on the topic of tokenizing everything, I'm subscribed to newsletters for multiple startups. And there's a messaging service that helps Slack products. And I got an email from their newsletter saying that they're considered launching a blockchain-based token. Why they would need it, I have no clue. It just seems that that's the, that's the, the tip on everyone's tongue is what they're talking about. And I have a colleague in New York who was here for a week and he took three Ubers. The Uber share, where you share with somebody. And every person in their 20s, there are three people. He asked, what are you doing this summer for an internship? Two out of three said that they were working at a cryptocurrency hedge fund. Oh my god. Wow. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, we're going to have to have a conversation about cryptocurrency hedge funds in another episode. Get get one of those interns on the show. (laughs) (laughs) There are thousands of them. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and featured music by Jared Rubens. See you next time.